You're listening to LawPod UK. It's a podcast that covers developments across all aspects of civil and public law in the United Kingdom. All the comments are current at the time of podcast publication. It's brought to you by the barristers at One Crown Office Row, and this edition is presented by Emma Louise Fenelon. Welcome to a companion episode in our series on Lord Sumption's Wreath Lectures. The Constitutional and Administrative Bar Association's annual Law Summer Conference included a panel discussion available on LawPod UK, which responded to these lectures. Following this, there was an audience Q&A session, which we also recorded. The panel discussion was so interesting that as a summer bonus episode, we wanted to publish it, with many thanks again to Alba for enabling us to do so. As a reminder, the panel was made up of Lord Dyson, Sir Stephen Laws, Lord Falconer, Professor Meg Russell, Professor Vernon Bogdaner, and was chaired by Mrs Justice Thornton. Due to the nature of the session, it might not always be clear who is speaking, but to get a better sense of this, we encourage listeners to listen to the initial podcasts. To begin, audience members asked three questions. The first concerned the tyranny of the majority, and cited the example of male-dominated state legislatures in the US making decisions about the reproductive rights of women. The question put was whether in exceptional circumstances, where there are breaches of fundamental rights, is it the duty of judges to give substantive rather than merely procedural protection to those people within minorities who are not represented at the political level? The second question concerned the absence of criteria by which decisions are made by judges, which has caused some controversy. The audience member asked whether or not sooner or later we are going to need greater clarity about our constitutional arrangements. The third contribution was a comment about the fact that UK judges, unlike in many other parts of the world, feel free to disagree with Parliament and how that is a positive thing. The panel were then asked for their response. Well, I will uh, address the second question, perhaps. I agree that there is nothing written down which states what the litmus test is for deciding whether or not the judges will get involved and make a decision or rather leave it to Parliament. And that is a problem. I'm not convinced, though, that having it all written down would necessarily make it any easier. I can speak from my own experience, but also I think it is one shared by colleagues, that there are very few cases where I found, and I believe others too, any difficulty in deciding whether this was something which was really for Parliament or I could get involved with it. And it arises far more in challenges to decisions of the executive. I mean, of course, challenges to the compatibility of statute with either conventional law or EU law are more eye-catching on the whole than the sort of thing that comes before the courts day in, day out, which is challenges to decisions of the executive. But the, the general approach, I think, is well understood by the judges. They know the sort of areas which are very clearly not ones for them matters of high policy, socio-economic, foreign policy, and things of that kind. There are other areas where absolutely plainly and obviously they are areas that the judges can get into, and then you get the grey area in the middle. But I'm not convinced that whatever you write down will actually make it any easier to determine where, where the boundary lies. It seems to me the main advantage of writing it down would be that it would be out there for everybody out there to see where the boundary lies. But I doubt whether in 
as far as the judges are concerned, it would make much difference to how they made the decision. Well, on the second point, I think it is unclear what our constitution is on very major matters, and I think the Brexit process has exposed that. On referendums, for example, when and under what circumstance should be, they be held, should they be special majorities, to what extent should they be binding, and so on. The rights of devolved bodies in, in relation to Westminster in, in questions involving them. And now, of course, the argument about prorogation. And I think, you know, I'd like to use a Birkin argument here myself. The experience of every other country has been, almost every other democracy, these things are best put down on paper in a written document. And since uh, America's been brought up, it's worth perhaps remembering a comment that Bentham made when the American Constitution was drawn up. He said it was a never-to-be-expunged reproach to our matchless constitution, matchless in rotten boroughs and sinecures. And you may say that the other constitutions of almost every other country are a never-to-be-expunged reproach to our own lack of a constitution. Thank you. Meg? Thank you. In response to the question about what is the criterion by which all this should be judged, I think there's a word which was used a lot by Lord Sumption in his lectures, which is legitimacy. And I would say maybe that's a difficult term to define, Maybe stability of our political system is ultimately the thing that matters. And whatever we do needs to be subject to consent. And the difficulty with, that one of the difficulties with moving to a written constitution is the very practical difficulty as to how we get there. And if we have a written constitution, it has to be one that people buy into, of course. And so getting from here to there, in a way, as Stephen Laws referred to, you know, are we going to have an elected House of Lords or, a, or an appointed House of Lords? Um, what are we going to do about devolution? What about England? These are very, very difficult questions. So in practical terms, it's hard to see how you get there. But in terms of sort of stability and consent now, I think there are some risks in all of this. At least two of the panelists referred to the level of popularity, as did Lord Sumption in his lectures, the level of popularity of judges as compared to politicians. And that is true. But I think that the more that politicians hive off difficult decisions and leave them to judges to make, the more that's under threat, actually. And I absolutely would be the last person to endorse those headlines about the enemies of the people. But if we see more decisions of that kind, like perhaps on prorogation, which strangely some politicians are trying to push onto the courts, I think we're going to see more of those kind of headlines and more damage to the reputation of judges. So I'd come back to the point that I made, that we have to face in a complex society that there are difficult decisions to be taken. Somebody has to take them, and somebody actually has to articulate that there are difficult decisions to be made. And if we can't push them off safely to the judges for fear of contaminating the judges with lack of popularity. Perhaps we need to find somewhere else to send them. And one of the things which we've been talking about, a lot of people are talking about at the moment, is it's by no means a silver bullet, but is um, citizens' assemblies by which ordinary members of the public are brought in and asked to <coughs> consider some of these difficult decisions and weigh up some of the alternatives on something like, which I think was mentioned in the questions on one of the lectures, and it was very close to Charlie Faulkner's heart, the question, for example, of assisted dying, um, the politicians are not grappling, are not taking those decisions. The judges, quite rightly, I think, don't want to take them because they see them as something for parliament. Politicians perhaps could try to bring in citizens who I think are actually quite sensitive and thoughtful on these topics and might provide some pointers if offered the opportunity to deliberate. So I think there are some alternatives to politicians running away and leaving judges to face the difficult decisions. Thank you. Stephen? 
I agree with almost everything Meg says, except when she got to citizens' assemblies, because <laughs> I think they lack legitimacy. I think if Parliament can't manage to decide something and get legitimacy for it, I don't think they will. And her, her, she mentioned the House of Lords, and she is, of course, the expert on House of Lords reform. And the House of Lords reform is a very good example of why you cannot produce a written constitution. In my time as a parliamentary drafter, I had numerous bills in my cupboard to reform the House of Lords, and they all came to nothing, normally at the moment we were about to introduce them. And they came, to, they came to nothing for this reason. You can have a more sensible system for producing the House of Lords, but the minute you produce a more sensible system, you give it more legitimacy to make more decisions, and nobody can define the limit on its powers that will be acceptable that will result from giving it more legitimacy. I was asked about the tyranny of the majority, and I think, first of all, to say that I was saying I don't think there's a threat of that in the UK, and I think that is because we have the system we have. I think we have a system where the way to approach damage, damaging behaviour in society is to persuade people that it's wrong. And I think the best way to persuade people that it's wrong is to get politicians on side and getting them reducing general principles to specific principles that actually protect people. And that's why I prefer our system. And on the question of clarity, it comes ill to a parliamentary drafter to say this, but I, I somewhat doubt the value of clarity in politics. Uh, I, I think it's very important in law. But I, if, if you ask a court or a judge who decides, who has the final say, who has the right to impose their will, the risk is they will answer that question and someone will have the right to impose their will. You ask a parliamentary politician at Westminster who has the final say, who should win, and the most likely answer you're going to get is don't let's discuss that, let's see what we can agree on first and then we can move on to the things and how we're going to deal with the things we don't agree on. So I think that is a great strength of our system and I've seen it in operation. Werner mentioned the the fact that government doesn't suffer defeats in Parliament. Well, it doesn't suffer defeats in Parliament because it isn't in normal circumstances, as Meg's fantastic research has shown. In normal circumstances, it doesn't make the mistake of asking Parliament to do things that Parliament is not prepared to agree to. And if it gets the hint that Parliament is not going to agree to it, very rapidly changes its own mind. The first question was, do we not believe in, quote, the myth of the majority? And I do not believe it is a, a myth, majoritarianism. I believe it is an ever-present danger to democracy. Democracy, as Nigel Farage rightly says, only works if the losers are perfectly content to continue in that society after having lost there are a whole range of things that make life acceptable for the losers in society, and one of the main ones is the rule of law. For myself, I think watching that rally in America demanding that Representative Ilan Omar be sent home, if that sent her away, I think was the language used, is an indication from center back, that's it, is the danger, potentially, of majoritarianism from time to time. And the protections against it are both 
the politicians and the courts. Don't look for protections in that sort of behaviour just in one place. I believe that the courts in our country have been very, very good very often at standing out against majoritarianism. And I take one example, which I'm sure Jonathan would agree was an appropriate exercise of judicial power, which was in relation to the Belmarsh cases, where in effect the courts said, the Supreme Court said, or the House of Lords I think it was then, said, although the Court of Appeal didn't say this, that to introduce legislation that was specifically directed at immigrants to provide us with protection against terrorism when there was no evidence that immigrants were more of a threat than non-immigrants was discriminatory and the court struck it down and by and large there wasn't too much of a fuss about it. And then subsequently the courts repeatedly struck down control orders even though they were incredibly popular. So I think the courts have rightly moved against majoritarianism and it's been a real strength of our country. And they've done it in a way that has involved accepting legitimacy. I completely accept that in the face of a massive tide of populism, the courts wouldn't be able to stand out against it. But the way our constitution works, they provide an important moral and legal lead in relation to those things, and it works incredibly well. So I do not believe majoritarianism is a myth. I believe the court's role is incredibly important in standing out against it, and I believe that if they don't stand out against it, the sense that if you're a loser in our democracy, you might not find it congenial to stay anymore will get stronger. Stephen Hopman's question, one of the problems here is that we don't have criteria for the courts to apply. Well, we don't, they're not written down, but just to take the American Constitution, and Jonathan's fourth lecture is incredibly impressive on this. The due process amendment to the American Constitution was used at the beginning of the 20th century to prevent, for reasons I can't quite understand, but unquestionably rightly, it was used in this way, to stop any pro-employment protection legislation being put through by Congress. That same amendment then became used in order to uphold a woman's right to choose in Roe and Wade. So the words don't provide you necessarily with the answer. Take the current big constitutional issue, prorogation. You don't need words in a constitution because the words in the Constitution are never going to say you can only prorogue in particular circumstances. The question of whether or not the courts will stop a prorogation designed to prevent Parliament stopping a no-deal Brexit will depend upon the basic principle of does it defeat parliamentary sovereignty. So I don't think it's the words that are missing. It is a precise definition of what our constitutional arrangements Involve, And then the third question was to say, we live in a society where judges feel able to speak out. I completely agree with that. I'm not a judge, but I would imagine judges are not frightened 
of the consequences either to them personally or to their standing as to what particular decisions they might take, which is a huge strength in our society and is not the same as in every country in the world. I mean, and I'm not just talking about oppressive regimes, I'm talking about regimes like, for example, Turkey or Italy, where politics do play a much greater part in the way that judges decide things. If that changed, for example, because it became systematic that judges were always the enemies of the people unless they found in pro-Brexit ways, then I think the atmosphere in our country would change. And I repeat what I said earlier on, which is the judges alone can't stand out against a populist tide. There has to be politicians as well. But you're absolutely right to say the fact that the judges feel free to express any view is an incredibly necessary part of our system. I was saying that the referendum introduced a third party into the relationship between government and parliament to tell who was right, what was the right answer. And that is part of the reason why everything is in a bit of a mess at the moment, because they need to work it out between themselves. And I think that is also right about introducing the courts into the relationship between government and parliament, which I think they should not do, because I think both of those bodies are responsible bodies that need to work out a collaborative relationship between themselves and produce a consensus answer. So there is a role for the courts with Parliament, as the Gina Miller case revealed. The courts jumped in there, which they may not have done before, particularly if the government hadn't agreed that it was justiciable. But they jumped in, rightly so in my view. Why shouldn't they jump in in defining what are the the legitimate limits of prerogation? I I, I think wrongly so in in that case. In Gina Miller? Yes, certainly. Okay, well, even Lord Sumption thought it was right for them. (laughs) I don't don't think that in a disparaging way. And I think that was wrong too. I mean, first of all, I think Miller was uh, ineffective as a piece of politics. In fact, if anything, it shifted the balance in favour of those people who wanted a no deal because it enshrined it in UK law from the very beginning when it should have waited. But the real reason I think they they shouldn't have intervened in that case, and there's another reason actually too, which is that it was a complete misreading of what the 1972 Act... said. And well, I, I don't think we, 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 we need to go in the de- into the detail of the 1972 Act. Unless anybody's got a burning question, both Meg and Vernon would like to come in on this new development as to the merits of Gina Miller case. So, oh, well, I want oh, no. to talk about Gina Miller, two other points that Stephen yes. Laws made. I mean, he's sceptical about majoritarian tyranny, but we've had it on our own doorstep in Northern Ireland from 1921 to 72, where the majority ruled and the minority was heavily discriminated against. <laughs> We've actually had it ourselves. Now, I think I agree with Stephen on the House of Lords, but I do think he rather idealises politicians, surprising having worked a parliamentary council. I mean, I I idealise judges, no doubt, but he talks about politicians with the virtues of rational persuasion and compromise and all the rest of it. I just wonder if he's had any recent conversations with Jeremy Corbyn or Boris Johnson. (laughs) Uh, Meg. Well, that touches on something that I mentioned, which is the collapse of the political centre, which I think is something that we should worry about because the political centre is where politics, as Crick would define it, happens. And indeed, one of the chapters in... in uh, is one that we have a slight difference between myself and Crick, that Crick has a chapter on politics and ideology where he talks about the danger of ideology for politics. Because of that, um, writing 40 years later, I also had a chapter on politics and ideology where I said that I thought we'd become too ideology-free and it had become difficult for people to take decisions because we got to a point of managerial politics. So just some ideology, but not too much. 
I wasn't going to say anything about Gina Miller, but in part I agree with Stephen in that it sort of shut options down for Parliament in a funny way, but it did also bring Parliament right into the middle of the argument, and I think that Parliament has been assertive ever since, and whether that would have happened, I don't know. That's, that's a difficult uh, kind of hypothetical. But on purgation, I think that it's a similar case where personally, I think it would be regrettable if that decision were made in the courts, because I think that Parliament ought to be able to sort out that decision. On the prorogation point, it's an exercise of power by the executive to prorogue Parliament. As it happens, this Northern Irish amendment, which requires Parliament to sit at particular times, is trying to stymie the ability of Parliament not to sit when otherwise it would be prorogued. But it is essentially an exercise of executive power. Of course. So okay. Parliament now, thanks to, thanks to that decision, has stepped up and sought to take the decision back so that it doesn't have to land in the courts. The yeah. point that we made in our blog was that in order to prorogue you need a decision of the, of, of the Privy Council, presided over by the Queen, if I understand correctly, former uh, Lord Chancellor, and those things don't happen every five minutes. No and so there would be a little window in which Parliament would be able to speak and potentially to speak to bring down the government, if that was what the government was trying to do. So I don't think you actually need to involve the courts. I'm just going to come to John Dyson. No, 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 hang on, hang on. We, we have got an audience as well. John, and then the audience. I'll be very brief. I just want to come back briefly to the Gina Miller case, because the point has just been made about what has been the result of the Gina Miller case in terms of the political um, um, consequences of it. And we all know about enemies of the people, and there is at least, I think, one enemy of the people in this audience. But I think it, it is very, very important, and I'm sure everyone in this room knows this, to emphasize that what, what the court was doing was, rightly or wrongly, was interpreting the statute. It was a question of statutory interpretation. Nothing more, nothing less. And they may have got it wrong. I happen to believe they got it right. But it, this is just another example of the point I was making that you get the, uh, the small number of um, highly high-profile cases which are, attract enormous attention, obviously. But what the courts were doing was what they are required by our Constitution to do, which is to interpret statutes. And what is so upsetting, frankly, is the fact that the courts, both at the High Court level and in the Supreme Court, what they made absolutely clear was they were saying nothing about the merits of whether or not to trigger... Article 50. They could not have been clearer about that, but I'm afraid some of the, the media, and they must have understood what they were doing, rather mischievously, I'm afraid, took no account of what could not have been said more clearly and made some sort of political capital out of it. I re really regret that. Audience members were then asked for another round of questions. The next question concerned the level of executive control over Parliament and asked whether the ability of Parliament to look after itself was in fact not as robust as had previously been suggested. The second question concerned the disillusionment of the population with the political process since Brexit and the question asked whether our constitutional arrangements now need to be re-examined. The final question asked whether it is possible to divorce values from judicial decision-making. Charlie, do you want to start? Yeah, Parliament looking after itself. I think that the events of the last two years indicate that Parliament is struggling quite badly in expressing its own majority view. Jonathan, in his lecture, one of his lectures, gave this incredibly rather unexpected but accurate, I think, 
definition of parliament, which is parliament or the commons is there in effect to support the executive or change the executive if it loses confidence in the executive, which is a very odd way of looking at parliament's role, because normally the way people express the role of parliament is to say parliament is there to hold the executive to account. But in fact, if you look at the sort of network of rules, in particular, the fact that the government can have priority in all of parliamentary business, except for specified irrelevant pieces of parliamentary business, like private members' bills and opposition day debates, what these last few years have indicated is that it's incredibly difficult, even if the majority view is of a particular view, for Parliament to express that view if it's contrary to the government. And I think you need a combination in those circumstances of Parliament from time to time expressing a procedural process with the aid of the Speaker against the government and the courts to do it. And I do not accept the proposition that Parliament is able, even if it's got a view contrary to the government, that it's able to give effect to it. It can stop the government doing things, but it can't make the government do things the government doesn't want to do. The second question was, our constitutional arrangements lack clarity, therefore they need to be changed in some way. I'm not quite sure what particular problem that's a reference to. I don't think that a written constitution is going to solve that for the reasons I gave previously. Nor do I think, and I agree with Jonathan in this respect, that if there is a problem about what our constitutional arrangements are, give policy-making power to the judges. You can't do that, because that would lack assent. You've got to keep a position where the judges have a role to play and Parliament has a role to play, and they both, as it were, represent a restraint uh, on each other. My plea, and this is where I, I strongly disagree with Jonathan, the courts have been quite good in playing their role in being a restraint on the excesses of the majority in Parliament and restraining Parliament generally and restraining the executive. And broadly, we shouldn't interfere very much with those arrangements. And yes, I agree with the last question. While I am motivated to some extent, it's where my political sympathies lie. So I want, as it were, left-wing liberal solutions, therefore I am you know, thinking which is going to produce those. Jonathan, in his lectures, everybody just argues to some extent on the basis of the particular result they want, which is true, obviously, because you do want a particular result in politics, but the judges, by being a restraining influence, tend to be a force for liberalism rather than a force for authoritarianism because they're restraining the executive. Thank you. Stephen? Uh, I just don't accept that what we've seen in the last three years is an exercise of power by the executive. I don't see how anybody can look at the last three years and come to the conclusion that the executive has been getting its way and that Parliament has been uninfluential over events. If that had been the case, we wouldn't be where we are. To say that Parliament is being forced to um, resort to the vote of no confidence as the only way of getting the government to do what it wants. That is the system. But part of the reason for that is because Parliament has already passed legislation to put us in a situation where the default is a no deal, partly, I think, as a result of the 
unfortunate consequence of the Miller case. But, and I'm not saying that the court should have taken that into account. I think that is an unfortunate consequence of it. Parliament does have legislative power, and it could have exercised it. It didn't. The right solution now is, if it doesn't like what the government's doing, to vote it out. And the reason that is the right solution is because government is a coordinated business. You can't say we'll have this bit and that bit. Parliament doesn't have the right to force government to do things it doesn't want to do because you cannot deal with policy on a piece-by-piece -piece basis. You deal with it as a programme. If you don't like the programme, you get rid of the government and get someone that will implement the programme you do want. Uh, where does power lay? I don't think the answer is where power lays. I don't think our system works on power. It works on a balancing out influences and that the trying to find words that tell you where power lay is a deterrent to responsible politics, which is trying to reach consensus on as much as you can. Thank you. Meg. <laughs> Terrific questions. Thank you. On the first one, I think in part I agree with Stephen, but in part I also agree with the questioner. I think that the events that we've seen in recent months in terms of Parliament's ability to get control of the situation have shown up some flaws in our system. And one, of, one particular thing that they have shown up is the extent to which our system and the standing orders of the House of Commons are built on an assumption that we will have a majority government. And it's very unfortunate, I think, that we're in this difficult situation with respect to Brexit at the same time as we're grappling with how to have a minority government for the first time in a very long time. And a lot of the problems that we're seeing are a result of the latter combined with the former. And in particular, the fact that standing orders give special power to the executive to set the agenda, I think, when the executive doesn't have a majority is very problematic and needs looking at. Um, on the second point, the disillusion with the political process, I'm really delighted that you asked that because I had noted down my absolute favorite quotation from Jonathan Sumption's lectures, where the, the single thing where I perhaps agreed with him the most was his explanation of where this disillusionment comes from. Um, he says it springs partly from the eternal optimism of mankind, partly from a misunderstanding of the role of politicians, and partly from an exaggerated view of their power to effect major change. And then he went on to say, aggravated by the auction of election promises. There are things there that we can't do anything about, and indeed perhaps that we should celebrate the op optimism of mankind, or perhaps humankind. The one thing there that we maybe can do something about is to improve the level of understanding about the job of politicians, which was my point exactly. So thank you for those words. On the last point, I think that was also an extremely astute point about how easy it is to separate people's constitutional choices from the substantive outcomes that they want. And I think you're completely right that although we like to think that we hold high principle, historically, here and around the world, you can see people applying going for the constitutional principles that they think will get them the outcomes that they want. An example of that would be, for example, historic attitudes towards changing the voting system for the House of Commons, which Vernon is a much better expert on than me. If you think that you'll benefit from a change of the system, you campaign for it, and if you find yourself in power and think you don't need it anymore, you stop. So that's an example. The situation we're in now, though, I think is really at a different level and really quite worrying in that we seem to be establishing a pattern whereby those who support Parliament and Parliament's right to take decisions are seen as being on one side of the political argument. And Parliament being the cornerstone of our Constitution, if we reach a position where that is seen to be 
indicating political support for one position or the other, and then we have a group of people who seem to want to cut Parliament out of the argument. And I agree with Stephen that the referendum has sort of inserted itself in this usual relationship between the executive and Parliament. And some people in this argument are saying all power to the executive in order that it can implement something that Parliament doesn't want. And actually, in terms of a no-deal Brexit that people didn't vote for and the majority of the public don't want, that's when things get dangerous, I think. Thank you. Bernard? Um, to answer the question about the proper sphere of law and politics, and I appreciate this answer requires a lot of refinement, surely the judges have a role to play where the processes of democracy are not working effectively, and in particular not working effectively in protecting the rights of minorities, and I appreciate that answer needs a lot of refinement, but it, that would mean judges were not introducing their own values into it, but only ensuring that the processes by which values are achieved politically are actually working effectively. On the second point about the role of parliament, I very much agree with what Johnson Sumption says in his lectures, the role of parliament support or change the government. The Fixed Term Parliament Act prevents parliament from doing either of those things because it has rejected a vote of no confidence in the Theresa May government, but also rejected one of its major policies three times in the withdrawal agreement. I think the last time Parliament rejected a treaty was in the 1860s. And I think the Fixed Term Parliament Act is a good illustration of my argument. This is important constitutional legislation introduced to meet a particular political <coughs> exigency without any constitutional thought. It's now left us in a terrible mess because it's not clear in the Act what happens in the 14 days after a no-confidence vote is carried by the Prime Minister, if it's Boris Johnson, should you then call another Conservative? Could he sit out time for 14 days until there's an election? Or should you call Jeremy Corbyn, who would call an election? These were very important points which were not considered because the legislation was drawn up in a hurry, which is typical, I think, of our legislation which affects the Constitution. John? I would just like to respond to Stephen Hockman's uh, question based on, on the undoubted disillusion with the current political arrangements. And it was I who said, leave alone, and he took me up on that, which is fair enough. What I meant by that was that we should leave well alone the scope of what the judges currently do. I do think, for the reasons I've expressed, and I think Charlie Faulkner has said much the same thing, that the judges get it right. I would not want to see that change. There are undoubted problems at the moment on the political scene. I'm not a political scientist. I would like to think and hope that when eventually, because surely eventually, this Brexit thing will get sorted one way or another. It may take some time. And then maybe we can get back to ordinary business. I, I may be quite wrong about that, but I'd like to think that would happen. But I maintain the position I expressed that as far as the judges are concerned, I don't see any basis for changing the way they do things. And it's, that's the basic reason why I don't agree with the thesis of Jonathan Sumption. Thank you very much. That's all we have time for. Please join me in expressing our thanks. LawPod UK was presented by Emma-Louise Fenelon and is produced by One Crown Office Row. For more editions of LawPod UK, you can subscribe to the podcast and recommend us to a friend.